you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Last week, uh, we saw the significance of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees and scribes uh, as we looked at uh, chapter 15. Um, They charged Him, if you remember, with having disregarded the teachings of the traditions related to the ceremonial washings and uh, that act which had been uh, primarily prescribed uh, to the priest. Uh, Nothing particularly wrong with the particular tradition. The issue was, in fact, that they thought so well of their traditions that they had become a law unto themselves. Uh, And as we saw last week, that their righteous standing before God uh, in their minds was directly related to their keeping of these traditions and uh, these laws. Uh, There was another issue as well, and even some of their traditions when kept to the extreme, which they always sought, um, actually opposed uh, the law that God had given. We saw how Jesus addressed this last week, even in their uh, keeping of their traditions over uh, His law of honoring uh, their parents. Uh, we concluded, uh, as we ended our time together, uh, that according to Jesus, what was at stake were the hearts of men and women and ultimately uh, the worship of God. He, in fact, He called them blind hypocrites, leading those that followed them into the very pit that they themselves were plunging into. And then He said this, Quoting from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What we've seen as we work through Matthew is that there is a growing tension. And this isn't some kind of a a literary tool that Matthew is using. Uh, In fact, the closer we get to the cross the more tension there is. And that's even true in our own lives. The closer we get to the cross, the more tension there is. The closer that we get to having to deal with the reality of who Jesus is, the greater the tension is. The greater our witness is with those individuals, with different individuals and pointing them to Christ, the greater the tension is, even in our own homes and our families. That tension grows when we begin to have to deal with the reality of who Christ is. Matthew is showing us this, and we see this all along the way, and that tension is growing. We won't look at these texts, but I do want to point you to them. Uh, I want you to notice the account they immediately followed the encounter with the Pharisees. A Canaanite woman comes and pleads for the life of her daughter. Uh, There's an immediate response on Jesus' part that might appear troubling. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this isn't new news. Remember when he sent out the 12, and we looked at it when we were in chapter 10, this was his instruction. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The point Jesus was making was, and he was making it to the Canaanite woman as well, is that she wasn't a part of the covenant people. She had no covenant rights. And at that moment, the old covenant was still in force. It was about to change. In fact, it was changing. But it had not yet been changed. And it didn't mean that Jesus was not going to act on her behalf or on her daughter's behalf. In fact, when you read the text there in chapter 15, uh, beginning there in verse 21, you find that He did. 
But the point that he was making is that he had come to fulfill the old covenant and had come to usher in a new covenant. Then in verses 32 through 39, you'll see that Matthew gives the account of another great feeding miracle. Uh, we'll not look at that. I'll let you read it on your own there in chapter 15. But the point is, is that as we've already seen in our call to worship, God is gracious in displaying His power. He's gracious in coming to thousands of people and showing them who He is. Now we don't hear anything about the people's response. That's not what was important. That wasn't Matthew's point. Matthew's point was to help us see that Christ had compassion on them, He cared for them, and He satisfied their needs. And that brings us to chapter 16. And we look there in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Him. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He answered them, When it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be a stormy day for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then he says this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. Right on the heels of this great feeding, this great sign, the Pharisees and Sadducees show up to test him. And what do they want? We said it. They wanted a sign. They want him to do something spectacular for them. They want him to put on a show for them. They're not interested in knowing who he is. That's not the point. They just want him to put on a show. And what does he do? Well, Jesus isn't in the entertainment business. He's not. He knew that it would make no difference in their belief in the same way it does it today. We'll see next week that Jesus isn't interested in winning people by entertainment. And He's not interested in calling people to follow Him by lessening the demands of the Gospel and the Scripture. He's not interested in that. In fact, He intends to let His would-be followers know what they're signing up for. He wants them to know of the suffering and the taking up of the cross that we heard just a moment ago whenever we were dealing with it in our confession. Here's the question that comes. So without a sign, how is someone to believe? That's the question. Without a sign, how is one to believe? When we do away with our luxurious buildings and our million dollars of electronics and our state-of-the-art children's buildings and our conference-style worship services and our Disney model approach to welcoming the public, how is one to believe? That's the question. And we hear about it, beginning in verse 13. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, 
And on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, there are parts of this text that we immediately identify with and recognize are easy to understand. And there are other parts, Father, that even after all these years, there's still so many who are confused about what they mean. Father, we know that apart from You, we will not know and understand them. We ask You today that You would teach us from Your Word and help us to understand what we can. And Father, in the course of that, direct our hearts to You and to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. There may not be a more significant text in all of Scripture as this text. I'm almost certain of that as it relates to the church when we speak about the church and who she is and what she is about. We discovered that Jesus has moved north of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. He's moved to a primarily Gentile city. That's what it is and that's where he is. It seems that he's moved there to spend time with his disciples. The demands of his ministry have been great. We just read just a moment ago where he fed 4,000 people plus the women and children. He's got thousands of people that are following him for days at a time. He is healing. He is attending people. He is teaching. He's being confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At every turn along the way in his ministry, things are mounting up and it is beginning to get more tense, more tension. All these things are demands upon him. And he takes his time away to spend with his disciples. Upon arrival, he asked this important question. Who do people say that I am? Remember last week, we looked at this just for a moment. And as we mentioned last week, their responses, though flattering, were not correct. Who would not like to be known as John the Baptist resurrected? Uh, it's great. He wasn't Elijah, though Elijah uh, had been, if he'd been resent, would have been uh, great. We read about Elijah earlier today. He wasn't Jeremiah. And even though his teachings were seen and understood as being profound, he wasn't any Old Testament prophet come back to life. So then Jesus posed this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I was thinking about it. If he were to ask us today, who do people say that I am? Do you know your neighbors well enough to know who they would say Jesus is? Some of my neighbors I do. Not all of my neighbors do I know that well. But if we were to look into our community today, what would we tell him if he were to say, who do people say that I am? Well, the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. They don't believe that He's divine. 
They don't believe that he's the son of God. He has been uh, dealt with in all kinds of different ways. Uh, he has been made to be a fictional character in some. He's been satirized by some. He's been mythologized by others. But the fact is, is that people by and large in America believe that Jesus existed and was a, true, and was a historical person. But they don't believe that he is the Son of God. So they probably wouldn't even refer to John the Baptist, and they wouldn't refer to Jeremiah, and they wouldn't refer to him as Elijah. They just simply say that he is a good man, he's a good teacher, he was a moral person inasmuch as they know anything about him. And that's what we would have to tell him. We would tell him today that the younger generations are less likely to believe that he is even associated with or dealt with by God in any way. We would have to tell him that people don't believe that he was sinless. We would have to tell him today that most of the people living in our communities today make no commitment to follow him. They disregard him. And the younger they are, and I will say this, and the wealthier they are and the whiter they are, the less likely they are to want anything to do with Jesus. Sounds strange, doesn't it? We're kind of in the same situation as the disciples. Jesus asking us, who do people say that I am? Well, they would not say that He's God. And yet when He comes to His disciples... He is wondering what they are going to say. But who do you say that I am? And immediately Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's confession is understood as being one of the most significant statements in all of Scripture. In fact, he is marked here, and we recognize this, as being the first person to make this claim and make this confession. Don't miss this. That question comes, and he is speaking, if you will, in one sense for the disciples, but this is a very personal statement for him, and we know that this is a personal statement for him because Jesus points back to him and answers him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. In other words, here he says, you have made the claim that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I'm looking to you and I am saying, Simon, you are the son of Jonah or the son of John. But then he says this, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We don't need to lessen Peter's confession. What we need to do is to look at it and recognize that this confession is a powerful confession. In fact, all of the church is built upon this confession. Our lives today, if you are trusting in Christ, are, it is built upon this confession. We sit here today as a body of believers because of this profession and because He was the first one to profess it. And He didn't do it on His own. Notice that Jesus points to the reality that the Father was the one who enabled him to know this and to profess this. 
He didn't come by flesh and blood. In other words, this revelation was not something that was humanly appraised. Now what we do know is, is that it came by all of the witness that God had already given in the person of Christ. Remember when we looked at Matthew chapter 11 and we were talking about John the Baptist? Verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What was Jesus saying? Send word back to John about what you have witnessed and what you have seen. The witness that we have of Christ we find here in God's Word. Who He is. Peter's revelation that he receives is not apart from that. What does happen here is that God awakens his heart and his eyes and his mind to help him to understand that what he has seen has only come because Christ is the Son of God. So when Jesus is asking this question, who do you say that I am? He is pointing back on all that you have seen. Who do you say that I am? Of all that you have witnessed, who do you say that I am? Of all that you have experienced, who do you say that I am? And isn't it interesting that there were so many people, thousands of people, who at that time had seen some of the same things that these men had seen, that Peter had seen, but they had not come to the place to confess that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that He was the Messiah, that He was the Son of God. And yet here, in this moment, in this time, God awakens the heart of this man to make this statement at this moment in time. It was something that was spiritually appraised. That's what I want to see. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to understand that we will not get there by flesh and blood. We will not get there by our human appraisal. We can only get there by the spiritual appraisal. In other words, we can only get there if God awakens us to that truth. The Apostle Paul wrote about this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. He said, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's why Jesus in John's Gospel chapter 6 Verses 44 and 45 and then 63 and six through 66 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Do you see what's taking place here in Matthew's Gospel? Matthew is opening up this understanding that this confession that is central and will be central to this church that Jesus is building is directly connected to the person of Christ as God has revealed Him. Now, what implications do they have for us as a church? Well, if we preach anything other than Christ and Him crucified and buried and rose again, if we preach anything other than that, then we are in essence removing the very foundation of the confession upon that which we must believe. I'm amazed. Week after week, Surveying churches, looking, listening to sermons, reading sermons, listening to podcasts, how absent Christ is. Good moral teachings, but no Christ. What does that mean for us? It means that apart from Christ and the preaching of the gospel, there can be no salvation. There can be no help for eternity. And there will be no hope for eternity. That is what Matthew is pointing us to. He could have confessed a thousand things. But by the grace of God, God awakened Peter to say this one thing. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Was well, something that was spiritually appraised. There's a second thing that we need to see here. We see that Jesus stated that He would build His church on Peter and on this confession. Now I want you to know, and we're not going to get into the weeds of all of this, this passage of Scripture has been greatly misunderstood. In fact, there is a uh, there is a whole section of the would-be called church, a Roman Catholic church, that misunderstands this text. And, and I want to tell you this. If they are right, then we are absolutely wrong in everything that we preach and teach. We both cannot be right as it relates to the gospel and it comes from the understanding or misunderstanding of this text. So, my point of that is, is not to speak negatively about Roman Catholicism, except that it is not gospel. And the point is not to speak negatively about the Pope, other than there is nothing there but a system of religion that is void of the gospel. We can't have it both ways when we come here. And I just share that with you on the front end because I want us to see here why this is so important. See that Jesus stated that He would build His church on this 
confession. And there's a play on words here. Look at what he says. Now Matthew is already calling Simon Peter, Simon Peter, before Christ has even gives the account of him calling him Peter. But notice that Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So who builds the church? We see that Christ here in this, in this passage is the one who builds the church. Now if we read, go to 1 Peter, we read that Christ is the foundation and He's the cornerstone of the church. That's not the image that Matthew is using. The Holy Spirit is laid it upon Matthew to play, place Jesus in this setting as the builder, the master builder of the church. We go to 1 Corinthians and we can read that Paul is the master builder and is a master builder. But here in this text, Jesus is the builder of the church and the rock, if you will, upon which it is built on, that church is built on, is the confession that Peter makes and Peter is the first one to make this profession. It's the first one to make this profession. But the profession is, this confession that is stated, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God who will save His people from their sins. He is the Son of the living God. The third thing that we recognize here is that not only is Jesus the builder of this church, but we hear that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. See what he says. I will build my church. Jesus is the one who builds the church. The ongoing work of the building of the church is Jesus. And we're going to find out how that's done. But he's saying that he is the one who builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, what is the text saying here? Well, let's look at it for just a minute. Many of us have probably heard that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and that that means the forces of Satan cannot stand against the church. And you know what? I believe that's true. But that's not what this text is saying. We can say with absolute certainty that Satan himself has no control and no power over the church. Satan is not going to stop the church. In fact, if we get to Revelation and we read the end of the story, what happens? The church is offered up to God by Christ. The bride is brought into the presence of the Lord and the church remains there for all eternity. Satan, on the other hand, is taken and cast into the lake of fire. So we can say that Satan does have no control over the church and can't destroy the church. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What is he saying? He's saying that death has no control over the church. That word hell, Hades, is always associated with death. That's the reason that Jesus is saying, I'm building my church and death cannot destroy it. The power of death will not prevail against it. 
We ought to be encouraged by that. We ought to be encouraged to know that death will not stop the church. And all we have to do is to look back over the last 2,000 years and realize that. There have been all kinds of attempts to destroy the church, and the church is still being built by the glory of God. The church, one person at the time, as God brings together His people and all of those that have gone before us have died. Those who are the real church. And yet they live today. Why? Because Jesus said that if any man would believe in Him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We live in the context of this relationship in the church and the body of Christ and its ongoing work. Remember, the church is the outpost here that carries on the work and the mission that God had established for redemptive history. The church is the outpost in the middle of this foreign land. That's what we are. We are an outpost here to carry on this mission and death will not stop it. If the Lord tarries, you're going to die. But the church is not going to end. I'm going to die, but the church is not going to end. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at the coming those who belong to Christ. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the church. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death has no control over the church. Take Heart. Take heart. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, and burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one hand, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is the bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. That's what we're part of. That's what we're part of. Christ has promised that the church will not be destroyed by death. It can't be. Christ is building His church and he tells Peter on this rock on this profession on this confession now I want you to get this on that confession you are the Christ the son of the living God he is building his church and death cannot stand against it but there's a fourth thing here Notice that Jesus said to Peter, 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I want you to think about that for just a minute. It's perplexed me. Just keep going back and looking at that. All kinds of questions come. The first question is, what are these keys to the kingdom of heaven? Now notice that there is a, a kind of a shift here. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys, the kingdom of heaven. Keys do what? Well, they lock and unlock. They open and they close. They, 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 they let folks in and then those same keys and that, that open and close lock and they keep people out. What are these keys? Well, from our text, it appears that the truth of this confession and the message of the gospel, we don't have to get outside of this text to find out the keys to the kingdom is the ongoing confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the message of the gospel being preached that proclaims that, and when it is heard by the heart, by the work of God, awakening the hearts and minds of people to the reality and the truth of this, it opens up, and when God does not open that mind and that heart, it closes and therein is the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's this ongoing confession. The preaching of a word. It was interesting back here some years ago. Um, we'd gone up to Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, for a weekender. And in the course of that, it was just to kind of sit through what they do as a church. And in the course of that, we sat through uh, an elders meeting and just a typical elders meeting. And they've, I don't know, there are 20, 20 elders maybe. And they're sitting around. And one of the things that came up, which was interesting to me, and I listened and then it began to make sense. They were discussing an individual in the life of their church that was coming to seek membership. And the discussion of baptism came up. And they said that the individual had been baptized. And one of the elders said, were they, where were they baptized? And it was stated at a particular church. And the next question that came, and you may find this odd, I did it first. But the next question that came was, well, was the gospel preached when this person was baptized? In other words, had the person been under the preaching of the gospel and this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is that what this person heard preached? Is that what this person believed? And was their baptism, or in other words, the affirmation of the church upon them, was it based upon this confession? You say, well, that's getting a bit, getting a bit detailed, isn't it? Well, maybe so until we understand this text. 
When we look at this text and we realize that this very confession and its truth is what in fact the church is built on and that Christ is building His church and if He is building His church and this is what He is building it on, then if this is absent, then no baptism, no other profession and no other confession will make any sense in the course of this as we look at it being a part of the church. And here, what are the keys? Well, the keys to the kingdom is the preaching of the gospel. What gospel? The gospel that holds up that Christ is the Son of the living God, that He is the Messiah, and that apart from Him there is no salvation. Apart from His atoning work, there is no salvation. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Think about your own baptism. Think about your own profession. And I'm not saying this to get you to doubt your salvation. I'm saying, did that come about because you heard the gospel? And did you come to believe in this very thing? Because see, apart from it, there is no salvation. There can be no salvation. Booney and myself, maybe some others, are kind of fans of old country music. Some of you will remember Chris Christopherson. Anybody remember one of the songs that he was most famous for? Remember, Why Me, Lord? Uh, go back and listen to it. He gave a word of testimony. Now, listen. I'm not, I want to be critical of him or the word testimony, but we can testify about things that are not gospel, okay? When we go to the court and they ask us, did we see a particular crime? We are giving testimony. It has nothing to do with the gospel. But he gave a particular testimony. He said he had attended a service on a particular Sunday morning after a concert, and the preacher preached, and he doesn't remember what the preacher said, doesn't remember anything about the message, but just at the end of the service, at the end of the service, an altar call was given, and he was emotionally moved, and he went to the front, and he doesn't remember what the preacher said, he doesn't remember what the preacher prayed. And out of that, he said, I had this, he said, I had this experience. He said, uh, they, they call it salvation, but I had this experience, and in the course of this is what prompted him to write that song, Why Me, Lord? I don't know Chris Christopherson. I'm just simply saying that we have to think about Christ made no, he, I mean, He made no place for us to misunderstand this. There is no ambiguity in Scripture about how one comes to be saved. There's no misunderstanding about how one comes to, to believe. One comes to believe when God awakens our minds and our hearts to the reality of who Christ Jesus is and what He has done in His atoning work. And no emotional catharsis. No good feeling. No warm feeling. No number of tears. No goosebumps up our back. None of those things at the end of the day have any thing to do 
with the awakening of our hearts and our minds to the reality of this confession. And in this, the key is the preaching of the gospel. passage of scripture that will help us understand this a little better uh, can be found in Luke chapter 11. If you will turn there for just a minute. Jesus is being approached here by <clears throat> some lawyers and there is this ongoing conversation in the, in the, before these verses. But <clears throat> one of the lawyers answered him beginning in verse 45, teacher in saying these things you and you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation for the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers. And then hear this. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. Now Jesus using this same word. Point is, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. What had they done? They had taken away the key of the knowledge of the righteousness of God and His goodness in His law. And they had created and taken their traditions and made up all of these laws which they could not keep. But they laid these heavy burdens upon the people. And in doing so, they had robbed them of the knowledge of the goodness of God and His grace in the law and the goodness of His grace toward them in salvation. And Jesus is saying, Peter, preaching the gospel based upon this profession is the key to the kingdom. They took the key of knowledge away. This is the key to the kingdom. The second question that comes is, what is loosed and bound? Have you ever wondered that? What is loosed and bound? Are we talking about a thing or things? Or are we talking about people? And, and here's where I believe an understanding of the text becomes important. It seems to me that we're talking about people. People who are being loosed and bound. Why? Well, these lawyers had been binding people. These lawyers had removed, if you will, the key of knowledge and people were being bound. And if you look back there, if you still have your fingers there, he said, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering into this understanding. 
But he's saying, Peter, you have the keys and these keys will either loose or bind people. What is loosed and bound is already tied to what has been loosed and bound in heaven. I think the, at least as best as I can understand in trying to work through this myself, that the New American Standard probably has the better translation on this text. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So in other words, in the preaching of the gospel, and the waiting on the work of God in the hearts and the minds are things that have already been settled in heaven that you are loosing and binding according to what has already been in heaven. In other words, God's work is exact. It is done. It is decisive. It has been decided upon. We, on the other hand, as a church, as the outpost and as the carrying on the mission of God are called on to preach the gospel in that we have the keys to the kingdom where we are at work doing the work that only we can do and that is to preach the gospel and God doing the work that only He can do and that is to awaken the hearts and the minds of those to the truth and the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then there was a third question that came to my mind. Are the keys given exclusively to Peter? Now, if the keys are given exclusively to Peter, then that becomes sacerdotal and the Catholics have it right. That all the binding and loosing would either end with Peter or there would need to be an ongoing progression of Peter's behind them. Peter's in the sense of the Pope that is kind of ruling and reigning in this. And for those of you who know very little bit about Roman Catholicism, just understand that a papal decree is equal to God's Word in Roman Catholicism. Is it exclusively given to Peter? We haven't gotten to this text and we're going to in a couple of weeks, but turn over to chapter 18 and let's look at verse 15 and following. And I think we'll see that it was not exclusive to Peter. But Jesus is pointing to Peter because Peter is the first one who has professed this, is the first one who's made this confession. He said, if your brother sins... Now, Matthew's writing at, in, at large now. It, there, there's not a, it, this isn't a testimony about Peter. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. 
The church what? The church that He is building, that Christ is building based upon this confession. And if He refuses to listen even to the church, let Him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then He makes this statement. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it's just as we read just a moment ago. Whatever you bind on earth has already been has already been bound in heaven and whatever you have loosed on earth has already been loosed in heaven. It seems that it is not exclusive to Peter, but that it passes on to the church. Why is this important? Please do not miss the significance and importance of the gospel that points us to who Christ is and our need for communicating that rightly and precisely and with boldness and with sensitivity. You know why? Because the majority of the people that you and I come in contact with don't know who Christ is. Which means what? They are lost. Which means what? They'll spend an eternity separated from God apart from trusting and believing in Him that they cannot do. They cannot do apart from hearing the Gospel that points to the clear confession upon which the church is built.